I think, I think we're on for the sermon, right? Am I missing something? I hope I'm not, because uh, I'm really excited about the sermon, so I want to dig in. All right, so thanks for the clock. Thanks for getting going, and I was supposed to remind somebody to start recording at this point in time. Did I do good? Okay, thank you, Adam. All right, now, here's what I want to say. Oh my gosh, what a fall. In the beginning of the fall, for literally the first weekend of September, I said, the Lord is showing me something. I'm a little hot. Can you, and I don't mean, I don't mean temperature, and I certainly don't mean looks, okay? <laughs> That's a funny thing. All right, but I'm just loud. <laughs> I am that, all right? But thanks for turning that down a little bit for me. Thank you. I just don't want to listen to myself the whole time. I don't, you guys don't have to listen to me either. Okay. So at the beginning of September, what I said was, and I gave it to her, I said, I don't know, but it seems to me like the Lord is revealing something to me that is something he's going to have us chew on and reflect on and work through for the whole of the fall. And indeed, we're coming to the end of it. And indeed, that's exactly what he's done. At the very beginning, he started showing us how even as Christians, even as people who get it, we think, we really don't. We don't get it. And so he brought that home in the numerous ways in which we don't get it. And then he started, how do you get to a place to where you can start doing the things that he wants you to do instead of the things that you think are the things and so on, right? How you can actually enter into these things that you don't get, and let's be frank, to a certain extent, don't even really want to do. How do you get to where you're actually doing them and you're entering into them in a whole new way? With joy, with fullness, with God, right? So that's what we've been doing. And this is my, my last sermon, I think, on this, because we're about to hit Christmas, and I think he's going to do something, but I don't know. I'm not guaranteed. I can tell you, six weeks ago, a long time ago, I asked Greg to do Thanksgiving like he always does, and he said yes graciously again. And, but he told me what he was kind of thinking about, and I didn't pay any attention because it's too far away. But, but here's the point. We went through the preach call for what he's going to do next week, yesterday, and sure enough, it is precisely the follow-up to this sermon. So I just, I keep calling attention to this because I want you to know that God is going before us. God is doing something here. God is leading something here, and you're going to want to do, you're going to want to be responsive to it. Because here's the deal. Remember the concept we're going after. There was a time when we were in college and we were watching and seeing. That, frankly, is where most Christians still are. But there comes a day when you've got to enter into your master's program where you start learning by doing. You start doing and you grow and you learn and all kinds of things happen because there's going to come a day when God's going to be asking you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, always, but to enter into where you're the one that's making the change. You, through you, he's making this change. So this is where we are, and we're right to the end of that master's level. And, and, you know, some of us are really entering in, and let's be frank, lovingly, some of us are still sort of not. So God is trying to say, do. And I want to say this. I love you. If you don't, it's going to be okay. But I do think it'll be a lot different. If you are getting involved in a way that when God does whatever he's going to do, you're ready for it, that's better than having to scramble and and fix it and get to the right place. You see what I'm saying? So that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're doing. And for today, this is going to be really fun. Uh, when I was in, just, just to set you up for this, when I was in Hollywood and writing scripts, I learned something that's a principle that we're going to be working on today. And that is, 
I went there to make a difference. I didn't go there to write scripts or to make movies. I went there, whether it be television or plays or movies or whatever, I went there to make a difference in people's lives. And most writers have something like that in there. They're not just telling stories. They're trying to make a difference. And certainly, Christians are always thinking about trying to make a difference, right? And here's what I learned about making a difference in, if you're script writing. If you want to make a difference in the world, here's what you shouldn't do. Write a movie that is so grand, that is, has such large themes, that goes after this, the whole of life in such a grand way, that you somehow think that you have wrapped your arms around what the world and reality and everything else is in a way that will cause people to go, oh, I see it differently now, and so I'm going to change. Now, why don't those, I'm not saying grand epic films don't work and so on, and you can do this in a certain way, but the bottom line is, why as a rule of thumb is that a bad idea? And here's why. Life is way bigger than a two and a half hour movie can ever capture. Life is much more complicated, contradictory, nuanced, subtle, changing, dynamic. Life is just unbelievably complex. And you cannot wrap your arms around it in 120 pages or, you know, a couple hours plus. It's just, I'm not saying it's never been done. I'm just saying it's hard to do. But here, interestingly, is how you do a film that changes things. You don't go after the big and the grand. You go after the individual and the personal and the intimate. In other words, you find a character and you develop that character so well so perfectly to what's real, so perfectly to what people can bear witness to as being how things actually are. You capture every nuance. Don't, you don't just capture the actions, you capture the reactions. You capture the expression and the micro-expression. You capture every single little detail of who that person is so perfectly that when people are watching it, there's this concept we call suspending disbelief because you know it's just Tom Hanks, an actor up there. You gotta suspend that that you can become that character, like we've talked about in parables. The power of a parable is, is that you enter into the parable and let the dynamic of the parable happen to you. That's how you learn. That's what changes how you think and see the world. Same thing with a film. But in order to do it in a film, what you have to do is you have to so carefully capture, so precisely capture that person and their character arc the journey that they're on, the change that's happening in them, that what happens is that you're experiencing that change as they go through it. You see it? Now here's what's funny about that. When you do that, that actually very much so, like a parable, can change how a person thinks, can change how a person believes, can change how a person is dealing with the world and acting and reacting in it. But that's only changing one person, Kurt. I got it, but now watch. How does Lyle Hall actually change the Maasai people? He's gonna change their culture, got it. And he's doing it and this is a really good thing. But how does he actually do that? Because here's the truth about culture. There is no such thing. Culture is a myth. It, culture is not a separately existent thing. Culture is simply the amalgamation, the compilation, the averaging of what a whole bunch of individuals think. You see it? Culture is what arises out of the averages, the, the, the coming together, the compilation of a whole bunch of 
individuals. So if you want to change the culture, you can't go change the culture. There is no such thing. We always say change the world. There is no such thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, youthful, it's a useful fiction. Because what it, what, you, but what it does is it can be unhelpful if you start thinking that the way to do it is to attack culture directly or to go after culture directly, engage it directly. What you have to engage is a person. You know, Madison Avenue's got this down. 60 Minutes just ran a thing on Kim Kardashian and the whole thing about these internet stars that are making huge, huge, huge amounts of money. And here's what they're doing. You, you know the one guy in the internet videos that, like, he jumps into a car? You know what I mean? As it's moving. Or like a vacuum. He's, a vacuum drives over him and it spits out clothes in the other way. They're film tricks. Right? He jumps into a pool and then something weird happens. And it's a film trick. Well, this guy is so popular because his films are so good that Madison Avenue said, you're going to, all, so many millions of people are watching you and they like you and they like what you do that we want you to do what you do and sell Coke doing it. So they're making tons of money doing this because Madison Avenue knows you don't change, you don't make people drink Coke by just telling them drink Coke. You make people drink Coke by making a person want to drink Coke. And then you make a whole bunch of people want to drink Coke, and pretty soon you've got a whole bunch of people drinking Coke. It's no different in Christianity. It's no different in anything. If you want to change the world, what you have to start with is a person. You have to affect an individual. You have to get them to think differently. Now think about that for a second. Here's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking about what it is that God is actually asking us to do rather than what we think he's asking us to do. Because a few weeks ago, I stood up here and I talked about this thing that's captured my heart, right, with, with the, the, the documentary Crips and Bloods Made in America. If you have not seen it, please do. It's incredibly important. But he's captured my heart with it. And we had this gathering afterwards, and you see the signs on the walls, and then the reason why they're there is because we're going to do it again after this service. And you don't have to do this, but I'm hoping that you do. Right? Obviously. But no pressure. You might already be doing something, in which case that's fine. If you're not doing anything and you don't want to do it, rethink that. But bottom line, we're not going to push, but we're going to offer. But what we did a few weeks ago was is that we looked at all of these things, and what I said was is, I don't know what we should be doing, and I don't know how we should be doing it. Let's just get together and talk about what we think might work, and we're not going to reinvent the wheel and come up with a ministry ourselves. What we're going to do instead is... We're going to talk about where do you think you're supposed to go and is there anybody there already doing it? And even if they're not doing exactly, are you, can you get involved in what's happening in a way that's going to make a difference? Now, when I say that, already I've decreased the bar because here's what I could have said. You need to go out and change the world. <laughs> you need to go out and make a difference. And I, what we could have done is fill your head with grand ideas about grand things that are so big that the vast majority of people would say, I have no idea what and I have no idea how and so I don't have any idea how to start and so I'm not gonna do anything. See it? Well, I wanna say that today God is not only bringing it down into something that feels doable, I wanna say that by the time that we're done today, he's gonna bring it down to the place to where it is attractional. To where you're going, well, I can do that. Not only can I do that, but I want to do that. Even if it still is something that has some eh, in it, it's going to be a, 
oh, this is different than what I thought it was. I really think that Satan has had a time with us by causing us to become so generalized about outreach, so big and grand in vision about what outreach is, that we haven't been able to wrap our arms around it and do anything about it, really. I really think that God, when he says outreach, means something totally different than we normally think. It's completely different, and that's where we're going to go. So with that said, Greg Thatcher, perfect person to do this. Preaching next week, uh, just, you know, worship leader. You're awesome. Thank you, Greg. Not Thank really. you for living this for all these years. Ask my wife whether I'm awesome or not. Okay. Yeah, well, I get that. Okay, pray for the church another, and sermon another church. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called us to be not just lifetime learners, but lifetime disciples. Amen. And Lord, that we are to change, as you call us, to, to go from glory to glory. So today, Lord, may we hear something that um, brings about Holy Spirit change in us so that we can reflect who you are. Father, I also want to pray for the halls and how they're ministering their church there among those people. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that an explosion would happen there of spiritual life like never seen on the earth before. Lord, that you would uh, cause that to happen through Lyle and his family and through those people that are taking you seriously. Lord, help us to take you seriously today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Boy, when I think about the halls and I think about what you just prayed, I'm just remindful of uh, a guy who was a... a missionary that used to go there quite oftentimes and he was a big fancy faith minister and uh, a guy caught him right before he climbed on his private jet to fly away and a guy from Africa caught him and he said are we cursed and the guy just answered in that sort of flip way of of course you're not cursed and everything else but the guy stopped him and he said no he said look at what's actually happened in this continent look at what's happened to these people look what happens the number of people, the number of times that we've killed each other, the, the amount of division and everything else. He said, are we cursed? And I'm telling you, that has always stuck with me. I don't believe that they're cursed. I do believe, I, I, I'm sorry to say it this way, because I just, that, that formulaic answer that that guy gave was an abomination. He should have entered into the pain of what that guy was saying and say, no, you're not cursed. But there are things that need to change. And when they do, it'll make an enormous difference. That's what Lyle Hall's doing. That's why you need to go out to that table and get involved in the Hall team if you're not already involved in one. It makes a difference. He's making a difference, one by one, okay? With that in mind, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the Go Groups, Mike Hatch, uh, I liked so much what he said after the service because he said something hit me and he, he had already typed it out. And it was a longer paragraph than what I'm going to show you because there were other ideas in it that he'll probably end up preaching. But I said, this is so good, you should preach. And right away. And he said, no, I got some other things going on. He prayed about it. He said, no, I'm not going to do it. But I'm stealing your stuff now, okay? But only part of it, so you're still on, okay? All right? But I want you to see what he said after I got done talking about go groups and everything else and just the way that I was talking about it. Watch this. Um, what am I doing here? Can you click that for me? because I don't seem to be clicking it. And can you help me get this to where it does click? Well, it's green. I don't know if this is me or not, so, all right, but the flaw in every society, this is Mike's words, the flaw in every society is that we tend to want the corporate entity to do the acting to help instead of the individual. You see it? 
You see, now, now watch this. This is a real irony, right? Because most of us in here are not wealthy. And we would be critical of the wealthy person that handles a cry, and this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make people sensitive to the cries that are happening on Rainier Ave, but we don't have to go that far away. We're talking about the cries that are happening next door. Across the street is a, a, a complex that the city has now bought in order to keep it a reasonably priced place to live, and it is filled with people that are from other countries, that are having tremendous financial problems, that are having tremendous family problems, and so on. And there's a, there's a, there's a cry that is coming up across the street of people that have incredible needs, people that are trying to figure out how to fit into this culture and this society, people that are afraid to fit into it because they're trying to hold a higher morale, moral standard than what we seem to be. There's all kinds of things that are going on there, and we don't hear those cries. So we're trying to get sensitive to hearing the cry. Now, what we say about a wealthy person is, you're not really doing the right thing if every time your heart is stirred, your response is a check, right? We're thankful for the check. But if that's the extent of your involvement, that's a problem, right? We all see that what you need to do is actually get involved as a human being in a way that gets your hands dirty, in a way that gets you interacting, in a way that gets you to a place to where you understand more deeply and more completely what the issues are and how to really help, and you can take some of your own horsepower and help to apply that, but you also can help other people and so on, right? That's what we're really looking for when we want people to really make a difference, right? And, and just because you have money doesn't mean you have control or access. You do have access, but not control, right? But the bottom line is, is we, we say that about somebody who's wealthy, but we do the same thing, even though we're not, because we pay taxes. And what we say is, is I get that Rainier is a big problem, but I pay taxes for agencies and social welfare and government programs that are supposed to make a difference, right? And the truth is, is do they? Yes, they really do. But do they make all the difference? Well, no, because the problem is still hugely there. And there's even times when they can actually, in well-meaning, cause more issue. That can happen too, right? So the point is, is I, I, I got this in my head where we're just the same way. We're saying, I don't have to do it because somebody else is. It makes me stay real comfortable and be real happy where I am. But that doesn't mean that's where God wants you. There is always, remember, there is always, he will lead you beside still waters and green pastures sometimes. But then, for his name's sake... He will take you up from that and lead you along paths of righteousness for his name's sake where you will be in the shadow of death. Right? And he's trying to bring you through that to the other side where it's made a difference in you and in that. This is what God is trying to do. And so I, I have this image in my mind, something I say all the time, which is in democracy, democracy works really well in a state like Wyoming where the majority of the people in the state either know the person they're electing or know somebody who does. And they can talk to them about who the person is. As soon as you get beyond that, where you, the, the majority actually knows the people running, as soon as you get beyond that, then what happens is you're at the mercy of political opposition and ads and, and all of the things that happen where you begin to paint and define your opponent the way you want them so that you'll win. And so people all the time in politics get painted and defined in ways that are unbelievably unfair. And that's on the right and the left. In fact, it started with the right, with Lee Atwater. 
He was fantastic at defining the other side in a way that made nobody want to vote for him. Okay? And now both sides do it to each other. But the bottom line is, is that's not, it's not working anymore. It doesn't work when we become so disconnected that we're at the mercy of people who are manipulating. You see that? It doesn't work when that happens. So I look at these government programs and I say, okay, I'm really happy that they're there. I really do think there's a role for them. I honestly do. I mean that. Okay, I'm a conservative. I think everybody knows that. Not everybody in here is a conservative. There's lots of liberals in here. And let me, let me say something after the election. For those liberals who think you're alone in here, you are not. We almost need to, we almost need to create a liberal support group so that people that have liberal leanings could be with other people and find out how many more people are like them and so on. But what we really need to be doing is talking to each other. Right? We need to be talking, not accusing, not generalizing, not over, not, you know, but we need to be talking because the fact is, is there's truth in all. There's also false in all. And we need to figure out where truth is and go after it. And we need to get rid of the false, right? And that doesn't work very well on Facebook when it's just slam and bam, you know, all right? But we can do this because we're a family and we need to be doing this. And, and let me just say, I'm going to just take one more. I'm on a little soapbox right now. Let me just say something. If somebody says something to you that is not your political persuasion, I am begging you to not make them feel ungodly. I'm begging you to not make them feel like, they, like they're just stupid and don't get it. I'm begging you to not attack them. That's right and left. What I'm begging you to do is to listen and to understand why as a godly person, as a person who loves God, they can say these things. Because there's something in what they're saying that's true and that needs to be grasped. And I think as the church is totally remaking the church, I think that this dimension is a huge part of that. I think the church got, got associated with a right, a, a movement, a political movement in a way that was unhealthy. And the church has done that many times in its past and always to its harm. That doesn't mean you can't still be a conservative or a liberal. What it means is, is you've got to find what's true. And I think what God is doing is I've never seen, as I've said before, I've never seen the church so fractured as happened after this election. And I mean everybody against everybody because everybody had something different in what they were thinking and feeling and they felt it strongly. And I think, that what, I think what God's trying to do is I think he's trying to get us to talk. I think he's trying to get us to really be friends to really not have to hold something back because you're afraid about what somebody's gonna say to you. You're afraid about how you're gonna be perceived because of this. You see what I'm saying? So I really want us to pick up, there's a lot more, there are some really great conservative thinking in this body and there's some really great liberal thinking in this body and I think when you combine what's really great about both of those, you'll actually get to where God is. And that's what we're supposed to be about, okay? So off the soapbox now, all right? Can I come back to the sermon? When I think about trying to reach people that are in need from a social agency, here's the thing that I think about. Now, this is weird because it's an analogy, so follow me. The, the counselors that, that go to church at Lake Sam are the most incredible, wonderful counselors that have ever lived, and they are 100% efficacious, which means 100% effective. So all the counselors that are in these walls right now and listening to me online that go to Lake Sam, you, I'm not talking to you. But here's what I do want you to know about counseling as a, as a metaphor. A professional counselor, many studies have been done, but a professional counselor tends to have an efficaciousness, effectiveness, how much difference do they really make, of somewhere around 15%. 
Now, it could be higher than that. A really good counselor can be higher than that. But here's the challenging statistic. Friends, really good friends. I don't mean casual friends. I don't mean friends that you see once a week in a small group or even once a week in a threefold. I'm talking about people that really know you. And when you're in a threefold, you do tend to get to where people really know you, but there's still more. When you really know somebody, when you're really in their life and they're really in your life and there really is this love and this back and forth going on, here's what happens. The efficaciousness of the solution that you bring to that person goes up to 85%. So even though we know something, we can't replace social welfare with a bunch of individuals because individuals are screwed up too. Right? So that's not the solution. But there is a truth to be had in this analogy. And the, analogy, and the truth is this. There's something about really knowing somebody that makes, you know, that, that makes you be able to, as the Spirit leads, and the Spirit's the only one that can do it. You're not smart enough. But the Spirit can divide between bone and marrow. You know, the, you know when the Scripture says that? You know what it's talking about, right? The difference between marrow and bone is... is in almost unseeable in the cell. It's marrow and then it turns into bone. So what's the difference between them? It's so slight and so subtle you can't hardly tell. But the bottom line, there is a difference. And so as individuals, what we can do with a friend that we know really well is, sometimes when our friend is really in need, you're in my threefold, sometimes when you're really in need, I know to, tell, to just do whatever I gotta do to help you because I know my discernment is, the Holy Spirit's leading me, help him. So I'll do anything I can do to help him. Right there, right? But sometimes, same person, same circumstance, but just another moment, and God is saying, don't. <laughs> because this time, if you help, it's going to hurt. Do you see it? This time, I wanted them to learn something. This time, I wanted them to grow into something. This time, I wanted them to engage something. Are, are, are we seeing it? And we know this is true, right? Because it's true with you. Sometimes people help you and they really shouldn't have. Sometimes they help you and thank God. It was important. Well, everything that we're talking about in this church thing that we're doing, here's what I think God's really trying to do. And whether it be political, whether it be church, whether it be anything else, here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell you, learn how to lean on the Holy Spirit. In every single thing you do, in every single thought you have, learn how to be led by the Holy Spirit in everything because only the Holy Spirit knows the difference between bone and marrow. Only the Holy Spirit knows the difference between helping and not helping. Only the Holy Spirit knows this distinction. You got it? We good? So what I got in my head is there's something else that needs to happen that will take us to this level to where we can truly be helpful to one another at new levels. Um, just, as a, just as a thought, Pete Carroll, after the game a few weeks ago, before they went down to L.A., was being interviewed about going back down to L.A., where he was USC coach. We hate USC right now, but where he was, we always hate USC, but we hate him especially right now, okay? But the point is, is that the USC coach, and he started Better L.A. He, he did this thing where he was going into Watts, which is right literally across the street from where they play in the Coliseum. And the bottom line was, is that what he said was, and this is, this is before anybody knew about it and everything else, but what he said was he learned pretty quickly that people in the urban settings, people in these very difficult places, they know all about people that drive in, drop off, and drive out. Even drive in and spend their hour and drive out. 
They know all about those, you know. It's nice that they gave us some clothes. It's nice that they gave us some food. It's nice that they gave us some money. It's nice that they gave us whatever it is that they gave us. But is this really making a difference in my life? Clothing doesn't make the difference in your life. It can sure help, and it's important to do. But it's not going to make the difference. So I'm going to tell you a story about how to make a difference. And this is a, I, I, I'm only most comfortable telling stories that reflect badly on me. Okay? I'm serious. Because that's where I learned when I made mistakes or when I learned something because something else happened. So this is, a, this is my brother Randy. And it doesn't reflect that badly, so don't worry about me. This is my brother Randy and his incredible wife Nancy. I'll get to see him next week for Thanksgiving. It's going to be lots of fun, right? That's what we call it, right? So Randy and Nancy, uh, I am in Virginia Beach. I am finishing up. I'm not done with my master's in theology yet, but I've done a couple of years work on it already. And I still have just a few more things to do, primarily project, thesis, so on. But while I'm working in my theology degree, I start realizing that there's a way to affect people that and in, in a way that is genuine outreach. I never intended to be a pastor. That was not at all what I was going for. I was going after how to help people that don't know God know him. That's what I cared about. And so what I did is, is I was getting this master's in this and I started to go into, and I got a degree in communications, but that was only because communications was a sufficiently broad master's to be able to do the philosophy and the script writing that I was doing in order to try and make a difference, right? Okay. So about two years in, Randy's back in Fort Collins working for this real estate company, making good money, doing what he's supposed to do, providing for his family. He's a very responsible guy. And what he does is, is one day he's sitting there working on a project and he just puts his pencil down and he said, to what eternal good is this? You know, I get it that I'm providing for my family. I get that I'm doing a good thing. But what's the eternal purpose here? I'm just, I'm just not enjoying this. It just seems like life ought to be more than this. And so he started daydreaming and dreaming and thinking. And he, all of a sudden what he said in his heart was, he said, you know, he said, the only time that I really feel alive, I mean really like, like I'm firing on all cylinders alive, is when I go into the high schools and I do DECA. I'm teaching these kids how to do business, but it's working with the kids that I love. So he walks into his boss's office and he says, I'm quitting and I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do, but he calls me up and I say, they've got an excellent master's in education here. You've got to get some training in this. Come out here, get your master's in education. And he does. So they come out to Virginia Beach and he's here for, I guess we were together two years full and probably close to three altogether. But the bottom line is, is that when he comes out very early on in the time that he came out, they meet this family, the Taylor family. Now, that's, that's the mom right there, and then that's Abdul, who I'm going to talk about a lot, and then his older sister, and then the two younger ones, and there's little Timothy, who's now 30 years old, and little, little Elizabeth, and Lisabeth, and so on, and then that's Nancy, and Randy's taking the picture. Okay, so, um, the thing about Abdul, this is, I could tell you lots of stories, but the, thing, the story I'm telling you is, the thing about Abdul here is, look at him here, he's with his older sister and his younger sister, and you see he's got a tie on. Now, the reason why that's important is because Abdul comes from what we used to call a ghetto. And this is a very, uh, there's a lot of military housing there. Norfolk, Suffolk, Virginia Beach are all very strong military towns, huge bases. And there's, there, back in the war, they built these fast up housing 
that was just straight streets and just street after street after street after street, just as far as the eye could see, of the same house over and over and over again. And then when the war ended, they were empty homes, and so poor people moved into them. People with, and so it became a ghetto. Now, I went down and I worked with Abdul a lot. Okay, I spent a lot of time with him. And the thing about Abdul was, is that he was, uh, all the time that I was down there, I never, ever saw, not one time, a dad in the house. I rarely, if ever, saw a dad. Not just in his family, in any family. Rarely saw a dad. And when you did, they were, um, no other easy way to put it, but usually drugs or alcohol and not taking care of their family, no child support or anything like that, for heaven's sakes. And very absentee, if, and that would be the kindest way of putting the kind of fathers that they were. Okay, and I think there's actually a reason for that, so I don't wanna hold them as culpable as that may sound. I'm not meaning to be judgmental when I say that, I'm meaning to be factual, okay? Now, unfortunately, the mothers, too, in almost every house in this huge neighborhood, Almost every mother was crack, heroin, or, or alcohol, or all, or some combination therein. So literally, I would go over to his house and his mother would be nodding off, unable to function on the couch. And this is the whole neighborhood, the whole thing. Because Abdul was a good guy, he had a lot of substance in him, of, of himself, he hated seeing this thing of the way adults were. And he was not going to be one of those adults. And so he would do things like wear a tie. But one of the reasons why he wore a tie was because of a guy who would come oftentimes to that particular ghetto whose name is and was Louis Farrakhan. And if you look at Louis right there, you see that bow tie, that crisp bow tie, you see that white shirt crisp white shirt. You see that beautiful tailored shirt. You see, look at his fingernails. Do you see that his fingernails are perfectly manicured and that his haircut is perfect? Louis Farrakhan would walk into a community that was disintegrating and he would stand tall and straight and proud and he would dress right and he would say, you don't have to succumb to this. And thank God for him on that level. Because he was telling people, you don't have to do this. And so young men like Abdul were saying, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm with him. Now the bad side of Lewis, and, and Abdul and I talked about it a lot, was that in their meetings, Farrakhan would say things like, you, you do realize that the white people have stolen all of your heritage. Including, for example, Solomon, who was black, but because he was the smartest and richest guy on the face of the earth, ever been, ever will be, and he was black, the whites couldn't handle that, so they turned him white. And then he would, in every speech, he would say, you do realize that you will never be free of this white oppression until you kill them. And, and it was no secret, it was not, there weren't police there saying you can't say things like that or anything else. He would say it over and over and over again. You have to kill them. And I would talk. He would, Abdul would go to Louis Farrakhan at night, and I would talk to him the next day. And he would tell me what Louis said because he was very open. And I would say, are you going to kill me too? And he said, no, no, you, Randy, Nancy, Julie, I'm going to tell you guys when it's coming and you can get out. But everybody, now watch what was happening right there. Watch right here. This is a lot to the political dialogue right now. 
You see, when he knew somebody individually, he couldn't possibly do that because he knew that we weren't the generalization and the stereotype that was being promoted. But he could still hold on to the generalization and the stereotype. You see it? But what was confronting it? People in his life. See? Now, Abdul grew up. He went into the military, married a gal. I'm going to read you the first letter that he sent to Randy Brunk. After, Randy and Nancy, after years of not knowing where each other was. Very close, all this, but I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But here's the letter that he wrote to Randy. I hope this email finds you in good health and happiness. I've been trying to contact you for a while now. A few months ago, I was talking to my wife about the blessing you and your family was to me and my family, and she told me that I should reach out to you and let you know that your love and effort was well worth it. I've been married for 14 years to a lovely lady, lady named Amanda. We have five kids, and all of them are doing great. My two oldest sons are both married in the Army. My daughter goes to ECU in North Carolina, and we have two sons at home still. I've been in the Marine Corps for 18 years and serve as captain in the logistics field. Now listen to this. I've obtained my BA and MA in education. Life has been great. I've been able to travel the world with my family. We've lived in Japan, Hawaii, North Carolina, Virginia, and California. I tell you this because none of this would have been possible without you. Well, I can never repay you and your family. I can at least say thank you. My family in Philly is doing okay. My mom's been fighting cancer for the last year. Now listen to this line. I do understand if you don't want to respond, just know that I thank you and I'm doing my best to live a good life. Thank you. He's not sure how Randy's going to reply. He's not sure if Randy's even going to reply. They haven't talked to each other in a long time and he's still thinking of himself as, right? Well, Randy, of course, gets a hold of this and writes it back and is just like effusively, oh my gosh, we've been wondering where we were. We pray for you all the time. We love you so much. This is awesome and everything else. After he sends that email, I want you to read the email that then Abdul sent the second email he sent back to Randy. Thank you for responding. My heart was charged with emotion. Do you see when he wrote the first letter, these people were so important to him and he was afraid that it might not work out well. And he's so relieved to find out that it's awesome. Wow, thank you again. It's because of you and Nancy that a new life had more to offer than, than when I was growing up. I had a few moments as a teen when I made bad choices, but those moments always seemed to be outside of who I was. I knew life could be better. Only as an adult can I really understand the chance you and Nancy took on coming to Philly to get us. And this is another part of a long story, but uh, the short version is mom, they had moved to Philly in order to live with family, in order to try and get help because mom was so drug addicted, and they ended up living in a crack house. And so Randy and Nancy had to go to Philly into a crack house in order to rescue the kids. At that point, there was just three of them. The older one was somewhere else. Trust me, you were right to be nervous and scared. My wife and I feel the same way when we visit there. <laughs> but now listen to this. I often speak to young Marines that come from all kinds of places, families, cultures, and experiences. I speak to them about my childhood and life, good and bad. My story is never complete without speaking about the angels that God uses to help us at different points in our journeys. You, my friend, were one of those angels. That's awesome, isn't it? I mean, that's awesome. But I told you that this story wasn't necessarily good about me, and I want you to see something here. I spent a lot of time with Abdul, and he didn't write me. 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you what actually happened. <laughs> but, I want you to, but I want you to know something. It taught me something. And I don't, mean, I don't mean this taught me something like in a negative way. I knew exactly why he contacted Randy and Nancy. Now, again, I'm telling on myself, and you can, I know you love me. I'll explain later why this isn't as bad as I'm making it out to be right now. But understand something. When I went to help Abdul, I drove into the ghetto and helped him there. Here's what Randy and Nancy did. They brought them to their home. Every time one of our kids had a birthday party, the Taylors were there. Every time there was a Super Bowl, a vacation, uh, 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 vacations too, every time there was a holiday that they were in town for, the Taylors were there. Every time the Taylors had a celebration at their house, Randy, Nancy, and the kids were there. They had melded their families. They had become in each other's lives and not in a casual fashion whatsoever. I was going in, doing my thing, and driving out. Now, to be a little defensive, to make you understand, the first two years that we were in Virginia Beach, we lived in a nicer neighborhood. It wasn't nice, but it was nicer. The last two years, we were incredibly poor, and we lived in a very rough place in Norfolk. And this place was so rough that we had a lot of people that were in our lives. So let, let me make that clear. I mean, literally, our next-door neighbor, just as one example, the two daughters were 12 and 13, and at 12 and 13, they'd already had multiple sexual partners and experimented with every drug there was. And we made them part of our family. So we did this too. But what I want you to see was, is that when Abdul thought about who made a difference in his life, he didn't think about the guy that came in to help him. He thought about the people that lived with him. Do you see it? Do we get the difference? Let me, let me take it a little further. I'm in a threefold. Can I tell you what God's convicted me about with my threefold right now? We have the best threefold in the church. Okay? I don't know what yours is like, but ours is better. Okay? I mean, it's phenomenal. We get together and we laugh a lot. And then we do deep stuff. And sometimes it's deeper than others. And we lift up each other's hands and minister to each other. We have the best threefold in the church. But here's what God convicted me about. I don't have him come over. I don't have my threefold come over to watch the Super Bowl or to come to a holiday. And when you texted me about, can we get a ticket to the, to the play? This is Joel and Hannah. And I was kind of hoping that we might end up at the play on the same night so that we could get together for dinner because of what God's doing in me. And what he's saying to me is, is even as close as we are in a threefold, once a week, it's still just once a week. I want to say, just because I'm going to say it, I'm not going to use your name because, but you guys are going through some real stuff right now. And all of a sudden, I don't feel like a great friend. And I think I'm a really good friend. <laughs> and I think I'm a really good friend to you. But you guys are going through stuff that's, all of a sudden, God just showed me. There's this thing about being in each other's lives. It doesn't work until you get there. I'm not saying it doesn't work at all. It works remarkably well. But you know what it doesn't work to? 
Last week, we looked at this scripture in, in Acts, and it, it, ought to be the, it ought to be the scripture that everybody ever looks at if they want to see what a church is supposed to look like, because this is what a church is supposed to look like. It's the first church. It's the one that God touched and made it look like what he wanted it to look like. And here's what he wanted it to look like. Oh, by the way, Abdul, I wrote him, and he wrote me. And I just want to show you, because, again, I'm being defensive. Hello, hello, Uncle Kurt. Okay? So, and we connected, and we actually helped him, helped his son try and find a car when he moved to Fort Lewis. And, and thanks for the encouragement, and please fill and thank God and all that. So I'm not going to go there anymore because I'm gone already. But, but here, I want you to show you Acts. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And what we pressed in last week was each day they met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals, not just their meals, but their lives. You see it? They were in each other's, they became each other's family. A lot of Jewish people, even then, even early on, it became much worse later, but even early on, if you became in this Christian sect, you lost your Jewish family. So that was a big deal. But when people got like that, watch what happened. And each day, look at the wording, each day they got together and ate their meals together, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You know, the, 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 the scripture verse for this church is one with God and one another, right? I do not ask for those alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. In us. That's one. In. Life. Life on life. The Holy Spirit helping you at every single moment in every single way. Right? This is in stuff. But now look what it says. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. And here's what I want to say. I think that somebody could look at my threefold and be so impressed with it, the level, the depth of the relationship that we have and say, I don't have that with my friends and I need that in my life. And I think they could actually come to the Lord just by knowing us in our threefold. But what would happen if we took it to the depths that the Lord's talking about here? That the Lord's trying to show us when he says you don't get it. And there's something more I want you to get. What would happen if we started living life? By the way, let me say something. You can't live life with more than just a few people this way. So I'm not asking for everybody to become everybody else's BFF. Right? That just makes the word mean nothing. What I am asking for, who are the people that God has asked you to become BFF with? And then do it. Live life together. Don't live in isolation. Don't live behind a, a screen and, and a Facebook text and a couple of texts. Live in each other's lives in a real way. I think when that happens, I think that people will, at a whole nother level, go, what is that? I don't have that. I want that. And that's God. That's the Holy Spirit. He's the only one that could get us for to love each other. Okay? That's not entirely true because we kind of like each other naturally, but the Holy Spirit's the one that can get us all the way. Are you seeing what we're doing here? Look at what Jesus does. He's not, Jesus doesn't say, go to church on Sunday and maybe a, a Bible study on Wednesday night. Here's what God does with us. When he makes us, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. He's with them all the time, walking, talking, being. And then 
Jesus says at the end of his ministry, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he doesn't just say, here's what he's saying. He's saying, it's better that I go away. You know, Jesus, your really good friend. It's better that I go away because I've got a relationship with you that's even deeper than could ever be with just me in the flesh. Now, it'll be with me too because I'm where the Holy Spirit is. I'm in the Holy Spirit and he's in you and okay. But he says, look, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, this one that I'm going to give you to be with you at every moment won't be able to come. But when I go away, then he can come and be with you at every moment in every way. Life on life. And then, the, of course, heaven. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I saw no temple in the city, for Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You know what that means? We're living in God. We don't live, God doesn't live downtown, and we live in a suburb in our mansion. We live in God. This is the nature, the depth, the intimacy of the relationship that God is going for with us. And all of a sudden, it makes me think, I'm starting to understand what iron sharpening iron really means. I'm starting to understand that it means something much deeper than I ever understood before. I didn't get it. But now I am. And he's calling me to a whole nother level. Now, Josh Morris said it last time, I'm busy. I got way too much going on in my plate to add all this time. Here's what God's saying. You do have a lot of stuff on your plate. Please let me take some off. So that I can put on your plate something that's so much better, richer, more beautiful. Let me put something on your plate that's phenomenal. In fact, I'm starting to see something altogether different. This is the Great Commission. This is what we're all supposed to be doing, right? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm starting to, I always thought of that as, you know, like Paul did. You know, you go to this city, and then you make a few disciples, then you go to this city, and you make a few, and then you go to this city, and, and what it meant was, is you just kind of go, and you bring them to the Lord, and you teach them a few things. All of a sudden, I'm not seeing that verse that way at all. Here's what I am seeing. He's asking me to do life on life. With not a bunch of people, just a few. And you know what's really cool about life on life? These are my friends. These are people that I love. If we were just getting together to talk about tech and sports or whatever else and not any of the harder stuff, I'd still wanna be there. Because we have fun talks. This is what I want. This is what I love. This is what God has made us to be. This is the most fulfilling. So all that to say this, last thing I'm saying. I'm on the phone with Tristan Herman. Really, really great young guy. I'm trying to figure out in my, I'm feeling called down to Rainier and those environs and people down there. And I'm talking to Tristan and I'm trying to understand what am I supposed to do? And here's the deal. See, I've done a lot of homeless ministry, and I've done a ton of attic ministry, and I'm just not feeling called to that. And so I'm talking to him about what's down there and what can I do, and nothing is feeling right. And all of a sudden, I start thinking to myself, 
well, as I'm describing to him, I'm saying, I, I, I don't even, you know, I don't want, it's, it's not about homeless, it's not about addicts, it's not even about youth, which I normally would be totally into. And, you know, like Abdul, and, and helping them at a crucial period of time for the rest of their lives, right? What I said was, I said, I feel like what I'm supposed to be with is some guys that are not necessarily as old as me, but in my same range. And guys that are in that community that maybe they have a job, maybe they don't, but, but they have something going on to where they can, they can actually, they're actually doing okay in that community. I just want to be with them. And all of a sudden when I said that, I went, oh, God's calling me to go have a threefold with some guys down in Rainier. Now, does that sound like outreach to you? Because it doesn't to me the way I was thinking about it. And all of a sudden, I realized at the same time that I thought that thought, I realized, I know, I did the marriage of a guy who lives there, and I, I called him up, literally, I got off the phone with Tristan, and I called him up, and I said, I want to do a threefold with some guys down there. He said, I totally get what you're saying, I'm totally into it, let's start after Thanksgiving. <laughs> so, it's done. And here's my big grand plan to do outreach and make a difference in the world. To go have a threefold with some guys that I'm sure I'm going to learn to love and that they're going to learn to love me. That just doesn't sound like the perverted thing that we think of as outreach. But it does sound like what Jesus does. Doesn't it? It does sound like what he does with us. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, your people come before you right now with a new vision for what it is that you're asking. Having deconstructed some old thoughts that were hindering us, we are now entering into some new thoughts that even though there's, there's still risk and there's still some unnerving and so on, but you're just calling us to go and make friends with a person that's what you're calling us to do? Wow. That doesn't seem so unattainable. Not only that, but that I see sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Not only that, but it sounds like it could be something that would be life-changing for me, not just that person. So Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, I'm asking you that you would do that with every person in here. That you'd get them so connected that you get them so understanding of the individual and not the grandiose, not the bigger, but the smaller, the more intimate, that we would all enter into what you do with us so intimately and beautifully. We reach down in front of us and we grab these two cups, and in the bottom cup is this bread, this, this, this life that we have lived in a way that has broken us. This life of isolation, this life of, of building walls, this life of not understanding and living in another person's shoes, this life. In Jesus' holy and precious name, we now understand at a new level how that has broken what you intended. And so we come to you, fantastic God. And what we say to you is, is would you please, would you please heal us? Would you please lead us? Would you please cause us to become whole with the others in our life that you have just waiting? We put our finger in here and say we've broken it. 
and we lift it up to you and take it, saying thank you for healing it. In Jesus' name, take together. And now in Jesus' name, we lift up this cup in which is this life that you purchased for us 2,000 years ago. And you're just waiting for us to enter into it. It's already there. Everything that needed to be done for it is already done. All we need to do is walk into it. So in Jesus' holy and precious name, help us to walk into it. Thank you, Jesus. Take this cup together saying, God, get me into the life that you have for me. Thank you, Lord. Was that fun? I tell you, I'm just, I'm just rivers of living water bubbling over with this things, the things God is doing. Ushers, could you come forward? We're going to take an offering right now.